The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it truly is a joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Stefan Van Voorst. Stefan is the founder and executive director of an organization called One to One, based in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area of Minnesota. Their mission statement is, quote, we believe intentional relationships create, change, and build communities. We will talk together in the interview about what that actually looks like because they are doing some really interesting work in bringing together people to have very intentional relationships for the purposes of building communities. This includes conversations about race as well as conversations with people on the police force. In fact, following our conversation, Stefan actually reached out to me with an email and said, and I got his permission to read this, he said, in part, the shooting of Dante Wright happened in one of the communities we work. And as I said on the podcast, we work in the middle of the police and community. And the conversation focus here is 100% about racism. So the conversation you're going to hear today is with someone who is right there working and forming relationships and having incredibly hard conversations about race. We will talk more about that. I also wanted to bring up a programming note, and that is that we are approaching our 100th episode of The New Activist. The show has been running since 2016, and we have slowly curated 100 different conversations with amazing individuals who, and I will speak personally, have taught me a great deal. And we would like to hear from you. If you would go to newactivist.is slash 100, that link is in the show notes, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you have found particularly helpful in these last 100 episodes, and we will be featuring some of those answers in an upcoming episode. And with that, we continue on our 98th episode with our guest, Stefan Van Voorst. So, Stefan, a decade ago, you started One to One, and I'm curious, like, we're going to walk through all of what One to One does, but I, I'm, what problem did you see a decade ago that you may not even have had a solution for, but that you saw that you wanted to try to work on? Yeah, a little over a decade ago, I was spending, I was living in um, kind of the first tier suburbs of Detroit, and for a variety of reasons, I was kind of going through like a spiritual crisis uh, of sorts. And I started spending a lot of time on the streets with folks with no other agenda other than just wanting to be friends with people and meet people and hear their stories and try to understand um, some of their life and and how they saw the world. And so I I met a lot of folks, especially young folks who um, didn't have homes to live in, uh, were living on the streets. And in becoming friends with them, two things really kind of started to to show itself in a way that I hadn't seen before. And one was, you know, I, I would sit for hours with people talking in a coffee shop, on a street bench, whatever. And some of just their kind of the skills that we have of having a conversation with somebody and be able to meet somebody brand new for the first time and, and know how to kind of go back and forth and ask questions. And a lot of those skills weren't there. And I was really curious about that and just kind of like, what were all the things going on? And 
Um, then it started making me ask those questions. Where did I learn that stuff? Like, where did I learn these kind of social things that help me function uh, in, in communities? And, you know, the more I heard of their stories, um, it so much went back to trauma as children, um, stories that they had where there was just things that something happened in their life and it, it, things went sideways. So that was one piece that I was just noticing, like developing individuals and how do individuals grow and change and form. But the other thing that was happening is I would accompany them as they were trying to do things like open bank accounts, register their kids for school, try to get health insurance, try to apply for jobs, go to job interviews, try to find clothes for a job interview, like all of these things. And the only reason I was really going along was because we were friends. I mean, it was just kind of like I'm accompanying my friends and kind of their day to day. What I quickly realized is that these larger systems were not equipped for the uniqueness of their lives in the sense that how do you open a bank account um, when you don't have a phone number, you don't have a street address, applying for a job when you don't, your only contact information is basically your name and how do they follow up with you? I mean, there's just all these little things that I was like, how in the world do they integrate into a system that was never really built for their unique circumstances. And so the problem that I really started to look at is even if you develop the individual capacity of a person, if the system isn't prepared to integrate that person and, and accommodate them, then you're still going to have a problem. On the flip side is if the system was provided all sorts of opportunities and ways to engage but the individual didn't develop the kind of capacity and skill set to understand how to take advantage of that opportunity and connect socially to it, then you also had a problem. So what I was really looking at is how do you do both simultaneously? What's the a mechanism that you're essentially impacting systems while simultaneously developing individuals? And I just kind of carried that question around and it led me to, of all places, the Middle East, um, Syria and Jordan. And I got connected to an organization called QuestScope. And I didn't know a lot about them. I, the reason I was interested in the organization is because we were getting ready to invade Iraq uh, at the time. It was the early 2000s. And it just was very troubling to me. And I wanted to learn more about the Middle East. And so, so I went. Uh, my wife and I, she was six months pregnant at the time. We got on an airplane and we went to Jordan. <laughs> and I stumbled on QuestScope. And... What I saw them doing is they kind of had a model that answered my question. And the thing that was going at the time specifically was they had built a mentoring, um, large mentoring program within the juvenile kind of system of um, kids that were incarcerated in Jordan. And every kid in that system had a mentor. And for a variety of reasons, because they built it inside the system, it also exposed ways in which the system wasn't serving the kids appropriately or in, in a lot of cases actually harming the kids. And so they, through the program, then what it ended up doing is bringing uh, a significant level of reform to the system while simultaneously helping young kids who were incarcerated develop skills so that when they got out, they could integrate into jobs and other opportunities. And it was profound. I, I, I had never seen anything like it and it really resonated with me because of my experience on the streets in Detroit. Several years later then, when it came time to think about engaging in my community, um, 
basically what happened is I, a parent called me. They had a son in a school here in Minneapolis, and the school was struggling, and they asked you know, if we could essentially get mentors into the school. And I took everything that I had seen and learned from Questcope in the Middle East, and I basically made an American version of it inside mm. the school system here. In, um, it's in a suburb of Minneapolis. I appreciate all that backstory. Um, and it's so interesting where the journey took you. I did not know that this was kind of birthed out of a program model that you had seen in the Middle East. And just that's incredible where the inspiration comes from. I wonder, though, why people have become more disconnected. Like the low hanging fruit is that it's like, is it social media? Is it something unique about the last decade that that has caused younger people to disconnect more from society? When we've looked at it, there's, in particular with, with young people we work with, they're already part of marginalized groups. They're young black kids. And so in many ways, they that disconnection has been for a long time when it comes to connecting to people or systems around them. I think some of what's happening in our community is the impact of even the school system we're in. During the early 2000s, the impact of some of the economic crisis, finding affordable housing. So all of a sudden, a community that at that time had been uh, majority was white, it basically within a decade flipped. And so what now what you have in, in that circumstance was you had kids coming from very different backgrounds coming into the schools, and the schools just weren't ready. A lot of the, the institutions weren't ready for that shift and what that meant and how to best serve those young people. And so then it just starts like this cycle of the young person can't integrate into the school. That disconnection just kind of perpetuates itself. The other side of this is when you look at youth data and the statistics around social connection for young people, um, things drastically change once uh, technology is introduced, specifically um, smartphones. And the data is really striking and, and it really shifts. And unfortunately, with that data, then what ends up happening is you see mental health and other things get impacted by it as well. And what a lot of the researchers are looking at is kind of they're trying to figure out causation. But at a minimum, there's correlation that I think for any of us that work, especially in youth development, it's hard not to go, you know, go there where you're seeing the impact of uh, social media and other things on young people. And then the way that it even plays out in the school space or in an educational setting or even in the community it can create other problems when kids are face-to-face because a whole nother world has potentially been happening simultaneously on social media that now plays out in a classroom or (laughs) in a hallway. And so I I think it just continues to create more disconnection and, and kids not being able to engage in each other in a way that continues to develop the skill set that, you know, that's how we learn. It's like, we learn how to become human with humans. <laughs> and so anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so what does that lack of connection do? I mean, you started to talk about it, but like, like, how do you see that manifest when, when people just don't have that ability or skill set to be able to connect? What is the outcome? Well, a couple of different things. Externally, when it comes to external relationships, the research shows this, but also our experience has really shown this as well. And that 
trust and empathy really drop. And so in a young person, all of a sudden now it's, you know, I've had young people in a school say, I don't trust a single person in this school, not one. And so that puts everybody kind of in this heightened sense of alertness and kind of hypervigilance when it, when it comes to relationships and just the social dynamics in a school. So that's kind of like the external relationships, the internal that's where it really gets into depression, isolation, loneliness, and the ways in which that really affects, you know, what's going on and resulting into harming themselves, harming others. um, And, you know, the impact that we all know of depression and the way that that takes shape in young people. And it just, those statistics continue to rise, unfortunately. So then how does, I mean, we're kind of pulling all the pieces together. You see this model working, you start to implement it, but how does one-to-one do what it does? How does it break the cycle of that disconnection? The core piece of it is it's, it's based on a relationship. Mm-hmm. And so trying to create any sort of social connection with a, an individual, a young person in particular, is the kind of the focus first. And we do that through mentors, um, getting mentors into their lives. What we found though is now you have a generation, our mentors have primarily been in their early 20s. And what, what we found is that it's the first generation of kind of the iPhone world. So they're, they're different than I am. They're natives to uh, this technology. And so what, what you find is they're, they're experiencing the same things as a lot of the young people. It just plays out a little different at their age. And so what this relationship, there's much more of a mutuality to it than what the word mentor actually communicates. And I think we've struggled with the word because what we've seen is people in general just need social connection. And that's not happening as much, um, especially face-to-face. And so even to put a 22-year-old in a one-on-one relationship with a 13-year-old, that's going to have a mutual benefit and impact. So that's really where it starts. But remember, like we... Our goal isn't just to connect them to a person, but help them develop the skills to connect to the system around them. And what that means is you're really trying to develop a, a culture of connection, a culture of relationship, while also looking at what things in the system are prohibiting some of that culture. Are there barriers that we need to talk about? And in our context, racial inequity and, and racism is a, a major barrier. Um, and so we have to then would the system really look at that and say, okay, how do we begin to address this barrier? Um, because it's part of the disconnection that kids are experiencing. How do these mentor-mentee relationships work? Like, what do they discuss? Is it like counseling? Is it like two buddies hanging out? Like, what, what is the structure of it that, that you found that actually makes it meaningful for, I guess, both parties? The beauty of it is, is it could take all of those forms. Um, it really depends on the individuals. What we do, though, is we have like a, it's like a kind of a learning methodology. It's just a cycle. And it's a way to look at a kid's experience, ask them questions about their experience, and help them create meaning to that experience in a way that they maybe hadn't thought of before. And so our mentors are not trained to really teach. They're trained to listen and really ask the kinds of questions that help kids move through a process of thinking about their experiences and reflecting on them so that 
as new experiences come, it's informing it and you create a cycle. Uh, and for us, the beauty of it is what that means is you can customize everything to the kid's experience. So there's no, in that sense, curriculum, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because we're really starting with wherever the kid is at, you know, we're all learning from our experiences constantly. We're just not aware that we are learning and we're often not aware of what we're learning. <laughs> yeah. And so things can be getting reinforced that we're not even thinking about, or there could be significant learning that we need to uh, pay attention to because it could have other implications down the road, you know, with our experiences. And so having somebody walk alongside you and notice those things, no matter who you are, that's a really powerful uh, relationship. I used to work with an organization uh, called Young Life back in the day. And yeah, yeah. I was always shocked at how, as an adult, how intimidating it was to try to make friends with somebody who's 14 years old again, <laughs> yes. like, yes. right. Like it can straight up bring up like your own high school stuff, but oh, also yeah, it's yeah. like, <laughs> it's like a 14 year old is sophisticated and smart. And they're like, you gotta, I mean, they use the phrase earn the right to be heard. I, I'm curious yes. <laughs> how you all facilitate meaningful matches. Cause it's not just like, here's your new friend. Like it, there's art to it. I would imagine. How do you do that? Well, there is, I mean, that's a great question. I'll, I'll add to that just to give you a, a little context about what that looks like in our in our world is that when we first started this we recruited mentors from the local community college mm -hmm. and what we didn't um, know is we, we would basically go into any classes where the professor would allow us to speak and we went in and a lot of those classes were law enforcement classes the law enforcement students had like service learning credits and things like that that they had to they had to do and so the dynamic that we had this is 10 years ago was mentors who were going to become cops going into a school that was 90%, you know, black and brown students and, <laughs> and being put in a one-on-one -on -one relationship. I grew up in rural Iowa. I was very ignorant, very ignorant about all of it. And so all of a sudden you see this dynamic playing out where the kids could recognize, wait a minute, these people aren't just, you know, college students. These people are studying to be police officers. And then you started hearing stories of the dynamic with police in the community. So what we did is we just kind of stayed with it. We just didn't give up. But we, what we really pressed on mentors is that, that this was as much about their formation as the kid. And so how they engage and how they approach a young person. And I mean, because you're right, to be rejected by a... <laughs> A 13-year-old? <laughs> it's crushing. And it's Yeah, quick. it is. They're, it is. <laughs> they're able to just dissect you in a second. Yes. But also what I would say is we totally underestimate the impact of a young person not having an adult who is there always trying to correct them, make them into something that they may not be, ignore them. And when somebody wants to pay attention and somebody comes in leading with questions, that is a powerful thing. Several years ago, the school asked if we could get them a mentor, and we weren't structured right, so I said, well, I, I could do it. And I walked in to the school, and they had talked to the student beforehand, and he, uh, the principal took him into the office, and when he walked in the office, he saw me, and he goes, oh, hell no, and he turns <laughs> around and walks out. Yeah. And it, it didn't phase me at all. 
I was like, of course he should do that. I'm a one, I'm a white guy. I'm older. I mean, why would he want to spend time with me? So I, I went after him. I said, Hey, I get it. I understand. I said, would you be willing to spend 20 minutes today? And at the end of that 20 minutes, if you don't want to spend time with me again, no hard feelings. I totally get it. And, uh, so we hung out for 20 minutes. We played a card game or something and talked. We ended up hanging out for nine months after that, you know, uh, every week. And so it, it's that thing where I think, especially as adults, it's like letting young people have opinions and be able to express their opinions and their disappointments and staying in it. I mean, gosh, it's more powerful than what people, I think, realize because a lot of young people are not experiencing that. Yeah, and and these relationships go on to both overtly and just through the the doing of life together, address things like equity and mental health and physical health and education and violence, but also I mean, I'm aware that you all are not only in the US, so have experienced everything of the last year that has come to light, but also you're in Minnesota. So, I guess I'm curious how have these relationships kind of moved into discussions of of race and equality and inequality. I'm just curious what this looks like as it manifests itself through the, the 2020 lens. The 2020 lens for us, because of COVID, it's yeah. having face-to-face stuff has been really difficult. But the thing for us is, for us, it started at least five years ago um, because this dynamic was happening. And so when Michael Brown was killed and then Eric Garner that's when Black Lives Matter, a local Black Lives Matter uh, chapter kind of rose. And, you know, so you had stuff happening in Minneapolis. And then a young man in Minneapolis was killed, Jamar Clark, uh, Philando Castile. So we, we've been living in a community and as, as an organization with this for several years. But early on, what we really felt like is the worst thing we could do is not talk about this. Like, let's talk about this. And now remember, we have in a room, you've got not only young black teenagers, but you also have black mentors sitting next to a white mentor who's going to be a cop. Yeah. So the dynamic was crazy. And what I asked the mentors one day, I'll never forget this. This was um, after Eric Garner was killed right around Christmas several years ago. And they had shut down the Mall of America, um, some activists. And I said, are you talking to your students about this? And immediately the whole room of mentors said, no way. And I said, well, <laughs> why aren't you talking to them? And I said, well, they would just be too much anger. And I said, so if you don't talk to them, does it mean there isn't anger? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. I said, let's, let's do the courageous thing and ask questions about this. What are they thinking? What are they um, wondering about? So everybody left the room and hung out with their students for an hour. The mentors come back an hour later and we open it up. So, well, what'd you hear? And I'll never forget this. Five mentors spoke that day and they all started with the same phrase. And it was, my students said something I never anticipated. Oh yeah. Wow. And I think the mentors realized that no matter what their experience was, and this is true of all of us, right? Um, you can't put that, project that experience on, on a kid on a young person. Um, they're having their own experience. And so our job is let's, let's get a better understanding of their experience and be able to put some of our stuff 
on a side burner for right now, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, let's take an hour to focus on their experience. So that really shaped our organization. I mean, we went on to start a law enforcement course at a local community college that's built around mentoring. We built it with the community. Um, it's a credited course. And now after George Floyd was killed, we've been working uh, in Minneapolis doing some work around bringing communities together to essentially go through a consensus building process of what do we want this to look like in Minneapolis. So it really was profound, but it started for us several years ago already. You know, we, we talk about the fact that you're based in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and this whole year on the podcast, we have been highlighting people that are finding very local solutions to local issues uh, in very practical ways. But it, it strikes me like about this program, is there anything actually uniquely Minnesotan about it that contributes to its success? Could this model work elsewhere? Yeah, I don't think there's anything unique to Minnesota. Yeah. I, I think the the critical thing is you've got to be rooted in the experience of the community. And that can't be me projecting what that experience is. That means the community has to have some space to say, here's our experience and here's what we want it to be. And then making sure that you have people who play roles of policymakers, community members, and you know professionals who are responsible for implementing policies, that those changes can happen. But we don't have a lot of examples where that's happening. Um, at least I don't. I, I haven't seen a lot in America. Questcope in, in the Middle East, this, they developed essentially the first GED in the Middle East through this process, yeah. where it was listening to kids and saying, if there was an educational experience that would work for you, what would it look like? They described it and they built it. That's the piece where I don't see that happening a lot in America. We're not really in a creative mode. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot of possibility as long as it's rooted in the community's vision for what they want. In our final moments, I am curious about you a bit. What made you specifically want to leverage so much of your life in support of this idea? Because like we're hearing about it, it's a great idea. It's really smart. It's a very uh, practical and caring way to be a part of of people's lives and to bring about really systemic change. And it's you know clearly successful. But what makes you care about this? My background was music and I, I was playing music in a lot of really big, wealthy, white suburban churches. It was great. Great people, great musicians, friendships that changed my life. But there was also a, a disconnect for me at times when I read the Gospels because I, I felt like so many of the people that Jesus spoke about and spent time with, I didn't know that it was necessarily reflected in my group of friends and my network. And so for me, it was, well, where do you go? And I just hit the streets. And it's like, sounds so silly now. But the thing, though, that's life changing about that is the friendships is what took hold of me. So it wasn't necessarily all of a sudden, like you're learning all this stuff. And now you go back and you share it with your church. It was these friendships changed the trajectory of my life. When I went to the Middle East and started spending time with Arab Muslims, same thing. And it changed how I thought about the world and what I saw happening in the Middle East. And then here in my own community, my relationships in particular with young black people, you know, our staff is majority black. 
um, these relationships have changed my life. And so Ta-Nehisi Coates in, in Between the World and Me talks about racism being a visceral experience. And one of the things that I've realized is I'll never really know what that is. Because for me, I, I don't know. I'm white, so I don't know what that experience is. But when I look at my friends and I look at how their lives are being impacted by some of these things, that is something that's very difficult to walk away from. I, I actually don't know how you do that <laughs> yeah. because I love them. And uh, I've spent four years, five years mentoring these three young men in, in our city. And uh, I've watched them and now they're 14, 15. And now all of a sudden I watch people view them where they went from kids to now potential threats. That's how I see the community look at them. I don't know. I, I just, you can't walk away from that. It's like, this is a problem um, and it's impacting people that I love and others. And so what, what can I do with my life and my friends and resources to try to help and serve it? There are a lot of people listening who have something, a problem, an issue that is that is nagging them, that just is particularly ringing their bell. And yeah. one thing on the show that we know is that like there's there's endless ways to be an activist. There are endless social injustices and there are endless solutions. As someone who has stared into a systemic issue and decided on a solution or at least your version of what a solution is, the way you're going to make an impact, and you made moves and you've started it, and now you're seeing really thousands of mentoring relationships happening and lives being changed. Like you've done it and I know you're still in progress, but you've done the thing. I I'm curious what advice you would give to a, a fellow social entrepreneur who is sitting on their idea and just like hearts racing, listening to this and they want to get going. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I think one of the challenges for a lot of us is figuring out in a world where there seems to be so many challenges and so many problems and they're so big, where do we fit in the midst of that? And I think it requires a lot of self-reflection. Um, where I realized that more was after George Floyd was killed, a lot of my friends were out on the streets protesting and, uh, and I never was. I was on my front porch literally meeting with friends and making phone calls with people that I knew within the system to start saying, what are we going to do? And I just really pushed heavily into my network and my sphere of influence because I felt like this is the best role for me in this moment, the best way to use my life and, you know, my, my network. But I think where I start to worry is when we make these kind of like blanket statements of how people should respond to these things. And it doesn't really respect the individuality of people and just the own, our own journeys that we're on. So I think that reflecting and really thinking about where's my role? Like if I looked at my life, what's the most impact I could do here? As with Dallas Willard several years ago now before he died. And he said, the question isn't how to live the life of Jesus. The question is how would Jesus live your life? <laughs> and I loved that so much because I thought, that is something that I can think about every day. If Jesus had my life today, how would he live it? That's a profound question to me. So I think 
that's probably my advice. I don't know if that's very inspiring. No, it's super <laughs> helpful. No, it's helpful. Yeah, because it's like it can go either way, right? Like it's either like, you know, register as a nonprofit earlier than you think, super yeah. practical <laughs> advice kind of stuff, right? Or get a lawyer or stuff or the, the real th- theoretical stuff. And I think that there's an abundance of practical advice out there. But, but in reality, it's like there's something bigger that you're doing. This is there are other ways to be more financially like yes <laughs> yes successful <laughs> respectfully right there yes like there are other things that could have been possible but that was that's where you went yeah yeah well my deepest thanks to Stefan and his entire team at one to one for more information on the work that they are doing and how you can even get involved if you are in the Twin Cities area, head to one to oneconnectorg That link is in the show notes. And my special thanks to Susan Umlor, my colleague and friend who recommended the work of one to one to us. If you have recommendations for the new activist, please head over to your local podcast player and let us know in the review and give us a rating. It really helps people find the show. We really appreciate it. Once again, we are collecting stories for our 100th episode. That website is newactivist.is forward slash 100. And the conversation that started here today will be continuing on all social media. All of those handles are at newactivistis. A huge thanks, as always, to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All of his tour dates, music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Stefan von Vorst, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>